The scripture reading is on page 410 in the Pew Bibles there provided for you. It's Esther, all of chapter 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 120 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mariz, Marsena, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to, to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree became, when, when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukin proposed. 
He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is the word of the Lord. So August 12th, 1860, was an extremely pivotal moment in world history. Whether you know it or not, in your own view or your own experience of history, all the way to the present, it was extremely critical. In this little village of Spital, Austria, a beautiful baby girl, her name was Clara, she was born to peasant parents, Johann and Johanna. We should muse for a second about what might have happened if Johanna had grown deathly ill in the months leading up to the birth. Years later, history would wish, sincerely wish, that Clara Heidler Hitler had never been born. Because the hellish havoc her son wreaked on this world will never be recovered from fully. How many millions of bright, ingenuitive, creative, hardworking Jewish descendants aren't alive today because of that one man? Have you ever thought about what would have happened if history's most pivotal characters had never been born to their mothers? Whether they're on the right side of history or the wrong side of history, how might events have swung the entire course of history in a different direction? Well, for the next several weeks, we want to consider this question. What difference does it make that Esther's mom birthed her sometime in the first half of the 5th century BC? How would our experience change this morning if Esther had never been born? It would change significantly. You probably wouldn't be here. Was she a historically relevant character? Does her existence matter than just her inclusion in this book of stories, the Bible? Well, here's where we're headed today. The book of Esther's unique objective, the book of Esther's historical importance, and the book of Esther's insecure king, the insecure insecure king of Esther. So first here this morning, the unique objective of the book of Esther is this, to show that God is powerfully present even when he is apparently absent. To show that God is powerfully present even when he is apparently absent. You'll find this to be true all throughout the book of Esther. We're going to circle around this idea like a tetherball its pole, winding closer and closer and closer as we progress throughout the book. And this, this idea is going to unfold in both literary brilliance and the book's material decadence. So first, literary brilliance. I think one of the most ironic instances of God's apparent absence in the book is his literary absence in the book. He's legit not named one time in the book, not even hinted at at all. Nothing. I mean, isn't that weird for a book of the Bible, a book about God and the way he has come down into history and worked his will? Now, this wasn't an oversight. The author didn't get to the end of the book and think, ah, goodness, I forgot to include God. No, it's, it's intentional, and it's an important intent here. There are even a few times when the author intentionally sort of stretches to not mention God. So something's going on here, and we need to find out what it is to unpack why God isn't even mentioned at all. This is obviously in stark contrast to most of the rest of the Bible. Just as an example here, the book of Ezra 1.1 
displays God's explicit involvement in an event. It's invisible to the human eye. Like, you would never know it unless you were told it. But it is made visible by the Spirit's illumination. So look at Ezra 1.1 on screen. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom. So we won't dip into the rest of the story there, but the point is that the book of Ezra makes us privy to this behind-the-scenes trigger as to why the king, who wasn't a believer, by the way, this wasn't like God working in one of his children, why he did what he did, because the Lord stirred him to. And Cyrus probably didn't even know he was being stirred. He just acted according to what he felt like he wanted to do in in the moment. The invisible work of God led to the visible results of God. But Esther never provides this sort of commentary on what's going on. We're not given any insight into why the the events unfold the way that they do. But even though God is not directly addressed or discussed or described in Esther, I still think that if we didn't have this book, we'd be far worse off without it. Esther is a real-time, real feel for what we go through as modern Christians. We face doubts constantly, don't we? Is God real? If he is, is he present? If he's present, why isn't he acting to fix this mess? Esther tells us that there's historical precedent for these kinds of feelings that we have. It gives us language for this, and it destroys the notion that God has to work in extraordinary ways to validate his work in our ordinary lives. So more than being troubled by God's absence in this book, I think it's actually the genius of the book, because that's where we are almost all the time, isn't it? always looking for the extraordinary and often missing it in the ordinary. This book will persuade us that God is present in our godless world, just like he was present in Esther's time. We'll learn that for the trained eye, it is possible to find God among the godless. In this book, we'll learn that there is no happenstance, only providence. In the late 1800s, George MacDonald penned the book, The Princess and the Goblin. Anybody read that book before? Five people. Good. This one's for you, Lou. Lou loves George MacDonald. Um, In this book, though I did hear uh, Tim Keller say this week that this is one of two books he wrote that's even readable. So uh, I don't know what that says about his, his authorship, but you can take that up with Tim Keller. Anyway, in this book, The Princess Irene must leave the safety of her castle to descend into the goblin caves to find her friend, Curdy. And the only way she can find her way through the dark and twisted caverns of the goblin caves is by holding on to an invisible thread. It's this invisible thread that a mysterious old woman gave to her. She can't see it. She can only feel it. And by always grasping that thread... Wherever it seemed to lead, even though the way was difficult, Irene was able to find her way down into the caverns and then back out into the light of day. As Christians who follow God in a godless world, it takes effort to keep our fingers on that invisible thread of God's providence. But we must, by faith, we must, by God's Spirit and through His Word, He remains present with us 
even while it seems like sometimes he is absent from us. We can't see it. We can only feel it through his word. Some of us are experiencing it this morning. A loved one has just passed. And God seems absent. Money might be scarce for you. You might have just lost your job. You can't see the next step in your life, what to do. You might be going down into the goblin hole. But can I encourage you this morning to hold on to the thread of God's providence. And it is only the thread of truth that will sustain you and ultimately lead you home. Here's the ironic twist about Irene's thread. She didn't know where it was leading her or why it was taking her there. She didn't even know her friend was in trouble in the caves. She just knew to follow it. She was not using the thread to get what she wanted. She followed it even when it led her into trouble. It led her into unexpected places, dangerous places. But in the end, it is good that she followed the thread. She saved someone's life. The point is this. The thread was invisible, just like it appears that God in this book is invisible. But invisibility doesn't mean the thread wasn't reality. It was reality, and so is God. And so, just know this. There are no chance encounters in your life. It's no mistake that God has placed you in your cube with your cubicle mate. It's not happenstance that you're on the block that you're on with the neighbors that you have. It's not coincidence that you're in this church with your gifts. We need them. And you need ours. Hold on to that invisible thread of God's providence and just know that there is no such thing as happenstance. Only providence. Lean into that. Esther teaches us that God is always doing significant things in really insignificant moments. What seems like a coincidence to us in everyday life is actually the providence of God. And the book of Esther will prove this out for us. In this short book, the future of the Jewish faith, the Jewish people, and ultimately the Messiah, the future of all those things is hanging in the balance by a very thin thread in the hands of people who could not be trusted, but who were all upheld by the God who can be trusted. Now, would God show up with miraculous intervention like he did for Daniel a few decades earlier? No. Does he throw some some plagues at the Persians like he did to release his people back in Egypt? He does not do that. He shows up in the really ordinary events of Esther. Nobody sits back when they read about the king getting drunk here in chapter 1 and says, wow, I wonder what God is up to here. Nobody thinks that's a really significant moment. But God is no less active when that coincidence happens than when he hurls the plagues at the Egyptians. The book of Esther is here to keep us from making that mistake. God is not actually less active, just apparently less active. We should all take great encouragement here. Which brings me to another primary idea. I think Esther boasts not only literary brilliance, but also, maybe surprisingly for some of us who grew up maybe pretty conservatively, material decadence. And by material, I just mean the stuff that makes up the contents of the book. 
I'm not sh- whoa. I'm not sure how Esther was presented to you in Sunday school uh, back in the day, but I can assure you this is not your mama's Esther, okay? It's an exhilarating, scandalous, surprising tale of money, murder, sex, scandal. It is a wild, wild ride. Martin Luther claimed that this book was, the book of Esther, was too heathen, too scandalous, too violently Judaistic to be in the Bible. He was really uncomfortable with it. He did not like Esther. Many theologians through the centuries have had the same sort of hang-ups as Luther did because its material is ruthlessly decadent. So why are we spending a couple of months digging into this? Why are we spending these hours together digging into a couple of characters, Esther and Mordecai, who in more ways than one embrace the pagan culture around them rather than resisting it, like Daniel did a few decades earlier? Daniel was in a similar position as Esther. You probably remember this story. But he didn't budge on his convictions, and it earned him a one-way ticket to the lion's den. I remember singing this song back in Sunday school that was called Dare to be a Daniel. You guys remember that one? Well, I think there's a good reason no one wrote the sequel called Aspire to be an Esther. (laughs) We'll find God using her, not necessarily because of her, but despite her. Esther looks far more like the pagan Persians around her than she does her Jewish people. In fact, Esther isn't even her real name. Her real name was Hadassah. It was a Jewish name. You can see that in chapter 2, verse 7. But she rid herself of that as she began to blend into her Persian culture, and she adopted the Persian name of Esther. I think this is the first clue that Esther isn't really the prime example of biblical, rugged faithfulness to God. Now, I think she's intentionally blending into the landscape of Persia like a chameleon on his leaf, not standing up for her faith and for her God. She's been playing her identity really close to the vest, playing it safe. But how how relatable is this? We can all thoroughly relate to this, can't we? How often are we playing it safe at the office, at the park, with friends or family? Afraid to mention the hope of Jesus for fear of the ridicule that might follow. Like Esther, it's way easier to just blend in than it is to take an actual stand. But the hope here, as we'll see, is that God uses Esther despite her. You're just going to have to put up with me figuring this out this morning. I don't know why this keeps happening. I apologize if it's distracting to you. Maybe it's more distracting for me to point it out. If that's the case, I'm sorry. But just know that it's going to happen probably for the rest of the time together this morning. I'll figure it out next week. I must have a weirdly shaped ear. So the hope here is that we'll see that God used Esther. Just give me a second. I'm sorry. God used Esther despite Esther, and he'll use us despite us. Most of us can more readily identify with Esther than we can with Daniel. I think the material decadence here throughout the book is ironic because the Lord seems to be using all of the wrong people to do his bidding. A power-drunk king, a perpetually and literally drunk king, a camouflage, seductive Jewish woman, her complicit advisory cousin, a murderous prime minister. 
Maybe it doesn't surprise you that God uses the people that, that hate him. That much is obvious, I think, here. But what I think is a little bit more surprising this morning is that he uses those who have camouflaged their allegiance to him to blend in. They've assimilated and capitulated to the godless world around them. And once again, that's why there's hope for us in this book, because God uses people like Esther and Mordecai. And we'll unpack that, obviously, in the coming weeks. God uses surprising people to get his saving work done. Amen? God uses surprising people to get his saving work done. Are you the sort of material that God uses to do stuff? Is your resume up to speed, up to date, up to snuff? Probably not if it's like mine. But God isn't dependent on brilliant resumes. We'll find that to be true again and again in Esther. Well, that's the unique objective of the book. Now, let's situate ourselves in history here. Where does Esther fall in history? The historical placement of the book of Esther. Well, as we ramp up into chapter 1 here, let's get our historical bearings. The first question we should be asking is, why are God's people even in Persia instead of their homeland? Why are they in Persia and not in Israel? Believe it or not, the answer to that question basically starts back with Abraham. So we are going to on-ramp into Esther from Abraham quickly here. So God promises to make a nation out of Abraham's family and begins the fulfillment of that promise by giving him a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son, Israel, uh, whose name cha- uh, Isaac has a son named Jacob, whose name changes to Israel. Israel himself has 12 sons. These sons have lots of kids, and they wind up living in Egypt. They continue to multiply and multiply until they've formed an entire nation, the nation of Israel. But they're living in Egypt. They want their own God-promised land. So Moses leads them out of Egypt. Joshua leads them into their new homeland, the land of Canaan, which would eventually become the land of Israel. Later, they appointed their first king, Saul. David replaces Saul. Solomon replaces David. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, replaces Solomon. And it's at that point in Rehoboam's reign that the nation of Israel splits into two, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom keeps the name Israel, and the southern kingdom takes on the name of Judah. Inside Judah is the capital city of Jerusalem. By and large, down through history, the kingdom of Judah did not have godly and good kings. But years earlier, God had made this amazing promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to King David. There, God promises David that from his line there would come a king that would reign forever. He would be the better forever king. And this is a promise that God's people would remember, then forget. Then remember, then forget. You can see that all throughout the book of Psalms and even in the prophets. It gets increasingly hard for them to remember this promise when Nebuchadnezzar sacks Jerusalem and Judah. He burns the temple and obviously he disposes of the throne. Like, what of God's promises now? Where is God at? Where is the forever king now? Well, Nebuchadnezzar deports all of these Israelites to Babylon. You may have heard of the exile in the scriptures. This is what is meant by the exile. The Israelites were exiled from their home country a few thousand miles east to Babylon. Fun fact, it was during this time of exile that God's people came to be called the Jews because they were taken from their homeland, Judah. And so if you ever wondered where the name Jews come from, that's where it comes from and when it comes from. Seventy years after Judah was conquered, 
and the Jews were shipped to Babylon. Seventy years later, Babylon itself was conquered by Persia under the leadership of King Cyrus. Persian kings operated a little bit more uh, uh, mercifully, maybe, than the Babylonian kings. So Cyrus allows all the Jews to go back to their homeland, and he even helps them fund the rebuilding of their temple. You can read all about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. And in obedience to God, many of these Jews did, in fact, return home in hopes that they'd get to see the fulfillment of God's promise about the throne, the forever king. Many went home, but some did not. Some stayed put. In fact, when Persia conquered Babylon, some of the Jews even moved further east into the capital city, the winter capital city of Persia called Susa. This city and this time is the setting for the book of Esther. It all takes place over the course of a decade in the Persian capital city, Susa. So among the Jews who moved to Susa are a man named Mordecai and his cousin named Esther. They may have been cousins, but Mordecai sort of operated as her guardian. We don't know what happened to her parents. And these are the two major players, two of the major players throughout the book of Esther, even though neither of them show up in chapter one, which is what we're unpacking this morning that we haven't even got to yet. How encouraged are you now? Um, Esther and Mordecai lived during the reign of Ahasuerus. But that seems to be a name that the Jews gave to him. If you sound it out in Hebrew, it actually sounds like King Headache. So we think that the Jews gave him this as a sort of sarcastic nickname. It tells you how they thought of him. But the history books know him as King Xerxes. That's his historically well-documented Persian name. Anyway, that's the historical on-ramp into the book of Esther. It's the current time and setting for the entire book. So let's dip our toes quickly into the first chapter this morning. The third thing we see here is the insecure king in the book of Esther. The insecure king. I mean, Esther opens up like an episode of that old MTV show, Cribs. You guys remember that? Cribs is the show where celebrities celebrate the wealth and glamour of their homes. It's an hour of flaunting their wealth and giving the public a behind-the-scenes look at their day-to-day glam. So film crews come into their house and, and film everything. But in Esther, the owner of the crib is the most powerful man in the world currently. The crib is the palace, and the palace is ridiculous. We won't delve into all the details here, but the basic point is to show us how insecurely this king ruled his empire. And he sought security, probably like many of us do, in three distinct ways here. First, by parading his wealth. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 6. We'll read it again. There were white cotton curtains, violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold. You do not find those at Ikea. And silver on a mosaic of pavement, or a porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And do you see how long this party lasted? Look at verse 4. 180 days. It wasn't enough for Ahasuerus to have it all. He had to flaunt it. The after party itself lasted seven full days. Look at it in verse 5, the after party. And when these days were completed, all 180 of them, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And so 
there was a purpose behind this party. The first six-month party was a big, fat flex for King Ahasuerus. He was summoning the military nobles and princes and leaders to, to rally support for his upcoming invasion of the Greeks. He wanted these men to value him, to honor him, to trust him, to follow him into war. So he tried to buy their support by parading his wealth. That's not the only way we see his insecurity here. He also does it by pursuing pleasure. The second seven-day party was for anyone, really, who lived in the, in the city of Susa. Come enjoy the splendor of the king. Oh, and it was an open bar for everyone in the city. An open bar like no one's ever seen before. Look at verse 8. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Basically, drink what you want, when you want, as much as you want. The historians of the day note that the devil himself danced among the Persians at these parties. That's how dark and seedy and decadent these parties became. Xerxes paraded his significant wealth. He pursued excessive pleasure. But as we'll see, he enjoyed all of this by flaunting power, a fragile power. But he wanted to flaunt his power. On the last day of the feast, you can see this in verse 10 if you look down. The last day of the feast, the king is merry with wine, which is just another way of saying drunk and acting totally stupid. Here's, and here's where things get weird. He commands seven of his servants to go and get his wife. This is the moment he's been waiting for. Just waiting for the right moment to drop this. He's going to show off his most prized possession. He's going to show off his queen, Vashti. Anyone who isn't impressed with this 187-day party is surely going to be impressed with the beauty of my wife. But, verse 12, Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. The king, think about this, the king who rules 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. The king who had partied for 187 days with drunkenness and carefree frivolity. The richest, most powerful man in the world gets burned by his wife with a simple, hmm, nah. And remember why he's had this party, too. He wants to uh, convince the top guys from all the land to follow his military might. And this dude, in his own palace, can't even get his wife to obey. He's been thoroughly embarrassed. Vashti may not realize it in this moment, but her courageous decision, and it took a lot of courage, is going to change her life forever. With one word, no. She sets in motion a chain of events that culminates in God delivering his people and fulfilling a promise that was made long ago and far away. She had no idea that that ordinary event was going to reap extraordinary fruit. When we think of redemptive history, we tend to think of the big-time miracles that God has done through history, that he, where he showed his cosmic power. We observed a lot of those in the Gospel of John over the course of the last year. But don't forget that those, those times of God displaying his cosmic power 
are chained together with long stretches of insignificant, ordinary events. Esther's time was one of those times. I think we live in one of those times too. But just like in Esther, God is powerfully present even when he is apparently absent. Vashti's simple refusal here is actually a super pivotal moment in world history. The future of the Jews and ultimately of the Christ are swinging in the balance. Vashti is a pawn in God's hand to save his people and send his Savior. We'll see that ha- how that happens in the coming weeks. But I, I think we should stop here and sort of go off script for a minute here and, and, and just recognize that, that Persia was not a pleasant place to be a woman. Women, including the, uh, including the queen, were the property of men. Vashti in particular would have been subject to whatever treatment came at the whims of the king. So imagine with me, if you will, it's, it's day seven of the after party with the open bar. We know these men have been away from their wives for a week. Vashti and the ladies, if you saw when we were reading through it, have been partying in another part of the palace. These men are beyond wasted. You do the math. Vashti was no dummy. Commentators vary here, but most think that she would have been expected to parade around naked in front of a group of raucous men, maybe a thousand or more, as the prized possession of the king. And I want to say here that unfortunately, even in modern society, women are often treated like this, as possessions to be used rather than as treasures made in the image of God. According to some research I read this week, a woman is beaten by her husband or boyfriend every 15 seconds in America. Four women die every day from attacks like these. God help us. Ahasuerus is a disgusting, cowardly, fragile pig. He had no intent of honoring Vashti as a human being, and much less as a wonderful display of the image of God. Women, if any of you are suffering in silence in a relationship like this, any of you, I don't think the point of the text is necessarily to set up Vashti as the heroine, but I do think that we should all be reminded this morning that saying no is an option when your husband is using you rather than treasuring you. If you feel trapped and don't know what or how to get out of an abusive relationship, there is help. Please do not suffer in silence. Let us help you. Take courage. Say no and get help. Men, if you are more like a Hazuerus than you would like to admit, objectifying women, whether physically or digitally on your computer screen, be it physical or verbal abuse of your wife, stop it. That woman is made in God's image. He loves her. He died for her. And he redeemed her with his blood. So stop shedding hers. It's your God-given privilege to nurture and treasure her. Repent. Get help. We'd love to help. There is grace for the humble. 
but almost comically here, poor, fragile Xerxes turns this into a matter of national security. He gathers his top, most trusted advisors. All right, guys, Vashti didn't come to the dining room when I asked her to. What are we going to do about this? And his advisors follow suit. They overreact too. In verse 19, they're like, now, king, man, if we let this slide, our entire society could rip apart at the seams. If we don't act now, no wife will ever respect her husband again. What a joke. You cannot legislate honor. But the king tries. He deposes Vashti and sounds out letters to the entire kingdom. I mean, the greatness of this king is paper thin, isn't it? He may be mighty, but his might is a charade. He is a paper tiger. Ahasuerus acted in these ways, parading his wealth, pursuing pleasure, flaunting power because he longed for transcendence. It's what he lived for. When you're insecure, you overcompensate by acting like you're something you're not. When I remembered that old show, Cribs, this past week, I plugged it into YouTube, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend, but I stumbled onto a video of, like a condensed video of five celebrities who actually lied about their houses on the show, Cribs. They had everything, but they didn't like the way their houses looked, so they spent some money to rent some ones that would look more impressive to the public. One of the guys, he did show his house, but he rented five bright red Lamborghinis to sit in front of his house so that we would all think that he owned five Lamborghinis. Several of the celebrities took film crews through rented houses. And to top it all off, this is a true story, one of the celebrities rented Jane Seymour's house to show off on Cribs as their own house. I kid you not. So all of America got to see Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman's bathrooms and sh shower and kitchen and all that kind of stuff. What a moment. And they didn't even know they were seeing. Do we know who Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman is? All right, thank you. Saturday nights on CBS. All right. Right after early edition. Um, la last week, uh, last, week I, last week I heard an interview. I heard an interview with comedian Kevin Hart a man who's made it to the top by any worldly standard. Money, fame, women, whatever. You name it, he's got it. But in this interview, he admitted that he's still grinding for the ultimate goal, as he called it. And what is that goal? Transcendence. He wants history to remember him. I want to be remembered by history, he says. And when you don't have Jesus, that is the best you can hope for. For history to remember you for a year or two or a decade tops. So we, we curate our social media image. A hundred pics for the right pic to post. We dress in a certain way. We make unwise purchases to make us appear like we're more than we actually are. But Trinity fam, we need for the word of God to play the part of Toto, to sneak behind that curtain of those misplaced desires and reveal the disappointing truth behind all of those worldly pursuits of wealth and pleasure and power. We need to expose those pursuits for the shams that they are. Because there's so much more, Trinity. There is so much better. Now, none of those three things are wrong in and of themselves. But our human hearts twist them into idols as we seek for transcendence through those things.
The world calls us to do whatever it takes to become more like King Ahasuerus. But come on, come on. The richest, most powerful man in the world got flummoxed by a simple exchange with his wife. There's got to be something more, more substantial and solid for us to lean into rather than pleasure and wealth and power. The bottom line, I think, for most of us is this. More than we think or want, we are dependent on other people's perception of us for satisfaction rather than resting in the delight and joy that God has for us in Christ. None of Ahasuerus' pursuits could carry the weight of the substance his soul craved. None of those pursuits could satisfy his soul. And it's the same for us. Only one can satisfy that craving. The living bread, the living water, the Son of God. Okay, we need to wrap this up. Here are a couple of quick observations and applications for us this morning. Just quickly. Don't forget, don't forget coincidence is actually providence in street clothes. God is powerfully present even when he is apparently absent. Second, God's will for your life is being revealed day by day through the unfolding of, wait for it, ordinary events. Don't get caught longing for the extraordinary when God is meeting you in the ordinary. I think we're tempted to believe that God has left us alone. But Esther is here to wake us up from this unbelief. God's presence may be veiled, but it is there. Open up your Bible. Grab hold of that invisible thread. Ask yourself, why does God have me where I am today, involved in the events that I am involved in today? How can I do intentional spiritual good in those contexts today? Hang on to that thread. Third, God is sovereign so sovereign that he does his thing with or without human cooperation. With or without you. And we see those dominoes beginning to fall even in chapter 1. But it's not because of any witting obedience from these characters. It's only because God is dipping into time and space and ensuring his ends are accomplished and his Messiah is preserved. Fourth, the fallen king of Israel is meant to stir a longing for the king of kings. The fallen king of Esther is meant to stir a longing for the king of kings. Think about this. Somewhere in Ahasuerus' realm was some young girl, some young woman would give birth. All the birth would seem ordinary enough. Ordinary in that moment, just another child being brought into the world. It's beautiful and joyful, but pretty ordinary. But her child would birth another child that would birth another child, that would eventually birth Mary, that would eventually conceive the Messiah. We'll find God's camouflaged ordinary work through Esther, through the work of Esther, ensuring that the forever king promised to David hundreds of years before would surely come. A king with way more wealth than Ahasuerus could ever dream of, but a king who wouldn't flaunt his wealth but rather lay aside his wealth, his crown, his riches, his status, all for the sake of his people. So King Ahasuerus is meant to stir this little hunger in you for the real king, the true king. And God would do all of this to demonstrate that beyond a shadow of a doubt, in the life of Esther, he was powerfully present even when he was apparently absent. And to convince you 
Christian, that he continues to be powerfully present even while he is apparently absent. Grab hold of that thread this morning and follow where it leads. Will you pray with me? We love you, Lord. Thanks for, thanks for giving us the book of Esther. This is like, on the surface, kind of confusing why you would do something like this. But thanks for helping us to see that you are there, present for us and in us, even when it's hard to see. I pray that we would trust that, that we would believe that, that we would hold on to that. This week, this year, and through the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.